Well, how many of you find yourself uh, in a new living situation? Maybe it is that uh, you have uh, come this direction in order to, uh, to, to go to university nearby, and the university in its wisdom has paired you with another individual who is also new, and you now have a roommate. And maybe for the first time in your life, you're living with somebody who is not family. You don't know that individual from Adam. And this is a new experience, a new living situation. How many of you uh, would say that you're, you know, maybe you're a returning student, and, uh, and last year you had a good friend, and you decided, hey, next year, let's room together, right? And you're going, you're, you're, you're in this new relationship where it's like you're friends, but now you're roommates, and that's taken on a whole different dimension in your relationship. Or maybe it is that uh, you're newly married, and you're trying to figure out how to do life with another individual. And this God willing, is the last roommate you will ever have, right? And, and you're trying to figure out how life works with one another. And so you go into this new living situation, and you find out that you're different than this other person. And, and one of the ways that you're different is the way that you organize. And maybe you organize, and they don't, right? Maybe you're type A, and they're type B, and you're looking at your new roommate, and you're thinking, man, it's two weeks into school, and you haven't found the laundromat yet. Like, you need to do that. Or, or maybe you're the type B and, and, uh, and, and you're, you're trying to, to talk to your spouse about this magic coffee table that's in your living room where you put a dirty dish on it and somehow it ends up clean and put away and you have no idea how that happened. And meanwhile, they're looking at you like, I'm not your mom. You really need to clean up after yourself a little bit. But conflict sort of arises when we experience like people with different organizational habits and skills and things like that. Um, there's another way that conflict arises is in terms of, uh, uh, of organization, and that's if you're an organized person who has an organized roommate or an organized person who marries another organized person. And then the conflict isn't over the lack of organization. The conflict is of whose organization is, 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 are you going to follow? Like, whose methodology for how things are going to be organized are you going to work with? I've been married for 17 years now, and I've learned a couple of things. The so first, um, you should bend to your spouse. You, you, you should let their method be the method, okay? Just you learn their method, okay? Just avoid conflict that way. Second thing I've learned is that sometimes you can't pick up the method. There, there are things about that method that you're just never going to learn. Um, Melissa, early on, she worked at the clothing store, and so she knows how to fold clothes in a way that I'm never going to figure it out. And so I will fold my laundry and put it away, but as far as hers or the boys go, off limits. I, uh, I can fold objects that have perpendicular sides. I can, I can handle uh, bath towels. I can handle hand towels. Um, I can do washcloths, and I can do fancy uh, linen napkins. But those are flat, two-dimensional objects, and, and that's, what I, well, that's what I can do. That's what I'm entrusted with. Um, and, and so when it comes to organization, like you, you, you see like it, it's really, really important. Now, um, what does that have to do with the Gospel of Luke? Luke is organized, okay? Um, Luke sort of begins his letter by saying that he's, he's writing to a guy named Theophilus whose name means lover of God. It's called the, the Lover of God series. And he's saying, I'm, I'm writing to you an account that's well-ordered. I'm writing to you an orderly account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. An orderly account. Now, does that mean that, that Matthew and Mark and John were like, yeah, well, we're going to write a disorderly account. Like, we're going to write a chaotic account, and it's going to be confusing, and nobody's going to understand what we write. Right? Well, no. 
we, we look at these, these four different gospels and we, we're glad that we have all four because they're written by different people, led by the same spirit, but written to different people. And so Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and Mark is writing to a persecuted audience. And, and when you look at, 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 the, at the gospel of, of John, like he employs language, it's so visual. Like there's so much imagery and, and he's talking about Jesus' light and love and, 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 and he's the guy that definitely should write the book of Revelation just because he's able to take some these, these things and just put them into word pictures that bring them to life. But here's Luke and Luke is a Greek and he's writing to Greeks, okay? But he's writing an orderly way to Greeks. And so uh, to sort of illustrate how you can understand Luke's organization, um, think of a collage on a wall, right? Anybody decorate like this? Right? Some of you, in, in your decorations, like you want all the pictures on wall to be the same size and equidistance from each other in a straight line, okay? That's, that's like linear sort of thinking, and, and that's, that's fine. That's not Luke, all right? Luke is collage. Now, Luke is concerned uh, to some degree with chronological order. He does move from before Jesus' birth uh, until uh, Jesus' ascension, and then you look at the book of Acts, it continues on with the formation of the church. So there's, he cares about chronology, but he's not glued to it. He's not stuck to it. And so, um, if you look at the next slide, this is not Luke. Luke's not looking at a, a, a piece of time and he's saying this came before this and then this and this. And he, he, he's, he's, there's a movement in chronology, but he's not stuck to following exactly what happened. Instead, what Luke does is he frames images for us. He takes a narrative, a story, and the teaching of Jesus, and thematically they sort of go together, and he frames them into one concise image, and he puts it before you as you move through the Gospel of Luke, all right? Essentially, this is, this is what we have in the passage that we're gonna look at today. So turn with me to Luke chapter 13. We're gonna start in verse 10. Here's the goal for today. Uh, we're gonna be looking at this, uh, this particular picture today and next week. Today, we're just looking at the picture frame. We're looking at the front end of it and the back end of it, the book ends of this passage of scripture and what it reveals, particularly about Jesus' salvation. Next week, we'll look at the contents with what you see within the picture frame. Okay, so uh, this week I'm gonna I'm gonna start. I'm gonna read uh, verses uh, uh, one through um, seven. Or I'm sorry, ten through seventeen, and then we're gonna pray, and then I'll read the other side of the bookend there. All right, here we go. Chapter thirteen, verse ten. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for eighteen years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So let's pray, and we'll continue on. Heavenly Father, thank you for your desire to save. There's no one above you. There's no one who forces you or coerces you. There's no one who makes you want to save us. 
or come to save you. You have done it because you want to. Thank you for your power to save, for, for your unending greatness and your ability to save. I pray this morning, Father, that we would be reminded of your desire and your power towards our salvation, that we uh, would, would have no fear in coming to you and that we would respond to you. And knowing who you are, we will walk away in freedom. Bless this time this morning, Father. I pray the words that people hear are yours and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so we just looked at one side of the picture frame. Let's look at the other one. Uh, 14, one through six. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So here's our, sort of our, our methodology this morning as we look at these, these bookends or this picture frame. First thing we're gonna do is we're gonna look at all the things that these two stories have in common with one another. When we look at the, the, the two things, or all the things that they have in common, we're gonna see the, the unity of Jesus' message regarding salvation, all right? So we'll sit, see uh, six different elements within these stories that, that are common to one another. After we've done that, and we've drawn our first point, we're then gonna look at the differences between these two stories. And what we see is, is in the differences, we, we see the breadth of Jesus' message of salvation. We'll see all that it encompasses in terms of his salvation. So uh, diving in, the first common thing that we see uh, for both of these uh, events is that it happens on the Sabbath. Both of these things happen on the Sabbath. Um, if you read the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, right, you, you understand, you walk away from that reading, understanding that God's people were meant to be Sabbath keepers. It's really, really important to God. It's all over the place. God's people were meant to be Sabbath keepers. And what that means is you worked six days out of the week. You labored, you toiled, you did uh, the, the business of keeping life going. But on the seventh day, you stopped. You ceased from all the work and all the labor and all the toil. And the first thing that we see about that in Scripture is that it's holy. In other words, it's, it's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be a day of the week like no other week. It's holy, it's set apart, and it's for God. The second thing that we see about the Sabbath is that it's a day of rest. It's a day of rest. Now, it doesn't mean laziness. It doesn't mean slothfulness. It doesn't mean, you know, kicking back and, and in overindulging in, in food and drink and watching the grass grow. It, it means that you rest specifically in what God has done. It is a recognition that you aren't the one that maintains and provides for your life. Yes, you go about all the business of doing life six days of the week, but on that seventh day, you stop and you, you remember all of life is being held up by God. He's the one that's sustaining it all. He's the one that's providing it all. You rest in what he's done. Then, then we see in scripture that, that the Sabbath is, is a sign of a covenant, the covenant that God's people had with God. God's people were meant to show the world what God was like. And so on the seventh day, here's this, this whole people group on the planet saying, we're not working today. We're resting. And we can do that because God's done all the work for us. We have a God who's done everything. We have a God who provides. We have a God who sustains. We get to rest in that. 
It's a sign of the covenant that they got to, to have. They get to show the world what God is like in that way. The, the last thing was meant to be a holy convocation, which means they were supposed to get together with other people. On the Sabbath day, it wasn't about going inside your house, locking the door, and hiding out for 24 hours. It was getting together with other people, and you're reminding each other of the goodness and the greatness of God that you get to experience through this. Right? So that's the Sabbath day. And, and Jesus is healing two individuals on the Sabbath day, and the next thing that we see that the, the, the two stories have in common, they don't like it. The next thing we see that the two stories have in common is that there's religious leaders present. The first is the, the leader of a synagogue. The second is a leader of Pharisees. Religious leaders are present, and they're, they're, they're watching Jesus do this. Um, now, it, it's important to remember that... Uh, that these religious leaders were supposed to be people that guided people in faith. But then they instead turned faith into religion. And there's a difference. There's a difference. Religion is about doing. Religion is service and sacrifice and, and it's ceremony and it's holy days and it's, it's do's and don'ts. It's a, it's a list of morality. It's, it, 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 it's what you do in order to appease the, 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 the deity that you serve. It is what you do to win the favor of the deity or to, to, to assuage the wrath of the deity. But religion is about what you do for God. Faith is about trusting what God has done for you. See, unlike every other religion in the world, Christianity is built not on your works, but on the works of Jesus Christ. It's about what Jesus has done for us, what God has accomplished for us, about what he's done. It's about trusting what he has done. Religion is about doing. Faith is about, is about trusting. And here's this group of religious leaders. And you might remember from last week, Jesus tells this parable. Uh, the, the master of a house goes away on a journey and he entrusts his household to these managers. There, there were slaves who were in charge of other slaves. He entrusts his household to these managers and, and they are supposed to take care of the house, but they're also supposed to take care of the other slaves. They're responsible for the other people. Well, time goes by, the master doesn't return and so they get the idea, master's not coming back, so it's my house now. And they take the authority that they've been given and they use it to abuse their fellow slaves. Jesus has in mind, when he tells that parable, these religious leaders who have been entrusted with leading the people in faithfulness to God, but instead have turned faith into religion in order to dominate and abuse other people and hold them down while elevating themselves. These religious leaders, that's who is present. And they see Jesus' actions and, uh, and they see him doing something that he shouldn't be doing in their minds on the Sabbath day. Mark 2, uh, 27 says this, or Jesus says, uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. And he's reminding us in that passage that, that Sabbath is about us having an opportunity to trust in what God has done rather than doing for, for him. Earlier on in Luke, we saw Jesus say that he was Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath. That means something significant, especially when we look to the, the, the third element that they have, these, uh, these stories have in common. And that is that Jesus healed both of these individuals using his hands. Now, Jesus often healed people, sometimes with a word. He even healed people who weren't even present with him. But in these two instances, he heals with his hands. He speaks to the woman, and he lays his hands on her. 
Um, the, the literal uh, language of the, of the second story is that, that Jesus took hold of this dropsy. His hands are involved. And it's, it's the work of his hands that the Pharisees are, are pointing to and saying, you're laboring on the Sabbath day. You're doing the work of man on the Sabbath day. You're not trusting in God. You're disobeying God. Therefore, you're not from God. That was going to be the accusation. But Jesus, he heals using his hands. You know, the reality is, is if when Jesus says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he's pointing to the fact that he's not healing with human hands. He's healing with divine hands. He's the one that instituted this day of rest, this day of trust, this day of faithfulness. It's for his people that he made. And so for, for him to reach out and heal on this day, it's the divine doing what the divine should with his hands. The fourth commonality between these two accounts is seen in the, the nature of the, the healing. Jesus addresses the underlying issues of both of these individuals underlying issues. So for the woman, she is uh, being oppressed by a demonic force. Spiritually being oppressed. Not possessed, but oppressed. That literally she's being bent over and it's, it's taking its toll on her physical body. So the outward symptom is that she's bent over and her, and her spine is, is, is bent over, but there's something deeper going on and that's spiritual oppression. With the man, well, actually, when you look at Jesus' response here, it really clarifies this. When Jesus talks to the religious leaders, verses 15 and 16, it says, Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Throughout the Old Testament, there's this, this, this picture of salvation that, that comes in, in, in release of someone from slavery, from unfettering, from unbinding, untying. And this is what Jesus is, is pointing to and is what's happening for her. Her deeper issue is that of spiritual bondage, which he's being released from. The guy, on the other hand, he has what the Bible calls dropsy. Uh, we, we don't use that term anymore. We, uh, we call it edema. And, uh, and before you start thinking that I'm a, a medical genius, what comes next uh, came straight from the Mayo Clinic website in terms of what edema is. Okay. So edema is uh, the filling of fluid of soft tissue, right? Soft tissue in the body gets overwhelmed with fluid, causes a lot of pain. Now, this, this is a symptom of something deeper that's going on. Edema is not a disease. Edema is a, is a symptom of something that, that's going on within, within a person. And it can be caused by a few things. It could be caused by uh, medication, right? Judging that this guy is living 2,000 years ago, I don't think it was like a, a reaction to prednisone, okay? Um, secondly, it could be caused uh, by pregnancy. Um, he's a guy, okay? Uh, but it could also be caused by uh, heart disease, uh, kidney failure, uh, cirrhosis of the liver. I'm looking at my mom to see if she'll nod, and she's a nurse. Anyway, uh, but, but, but there's these, these deep underlying causes, and what it adds up to is that this man's dying, okay? 2,000 years ago, heart disease, kidney failure, cirrhosis of the liver, like this man is terminal, he's dying. There's an underlying cause to the edema, but there's, a, there's an underlying cause to that, and it's sin. Ever since Genesis 3, the cause of human death, the cause of all human death is sin. 
You could look at this man and you say, well, he, he ate too many fatty foods or uh, he, he drank too much wine and got cirrhosis or, or this could be the result of, of his direct sin, but it doesn't really matter because all of us die because we're all sinners. Sin entered into our reality in Genesis 3 and it's, it's here. Ultimately, we all die from one cause, sin. And that is what Jesus is gonna address. Look at what he says in verse five of chapter 14. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? There's this picture falling into a well. You, you look at the Old Testament, you see this picture used a lot, especially in Job and Psalms, this notion of falling into a pit. It's a picture of sin. It's being entrapped and ensnared and, and stuck in the bottom of a pit. That's how the Bible symbolizes sin. And so, Jesus says, who wouldn't reach down and grab them out? Who wouldn't rescue them from the pit on the Sabbath day? So, so Jesus is, in, in both of these instances, he's addressing underlying issues. Um, the fifth commonality, uh, also a little less obvious, but it's a really important one. Both of these stories employ water symbolically. Both these stories employ water symbolically. If you remember from last week, Jesus talks about two judgments. One is a judgment of fire. And we'll see this at the the eschatological crisis when Jesus returns and he's going to make an end to the presence of sin with fire. Fire cleanses. Fire will once and for all remove sin from our reality. And we see that all over Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 8. But Jesus used another picture of judgment. Baptism. Jesus talks about the baptism that he is going to undergo. And he's not talking about the baptism of the Jordan River that he experienced under John the Baptist. He's talking about the cross. You see, water is also a symbol of judgment. We see that in the flood in Genesis. We see that in the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus. And we see that at the cross. After Jesus dies, a Roman centurion takes a spear, plunges it into his side. It pierces a sack of fluid around his heart and lungs, and water flows from the side of Jesus. Symbolically, that's our cleansing flood. If you've heard the song, we'll sing it later. Symbolically, that fluid flowing from his side, that, that, that element is, is pointing to this, this baptism that Jesus is talking about, that he undergoes. You see, he's the one who's judged by God. He's the one that suffers the wrath of God. He's the one who takes our place and is judged so that we get to go free. See, both of these, these, these stories have this element of water embedded in them. You see it in, uh, in how the, the, the donkey or the ox is led They're untied and led to water. Or how the man's got fluid filling his body and he's trapped in the bottom of the well is the picture there. In that picture, he's facing the judgment and it's Jesus who's gonna come and rescue him from the pit and take his place. But it's the cross that's in view here and this is where we find the gospel in this passage and it's really important that we don't miss it. Last commonality between these stories. It's that the rulers have no rebuttal. In each case, in the first one, uh, the, the, the rulers are shamed into silence. Jesus points out their hypocrisy. They're shamed into silence. In the second one, they just, they just don't rebut. They have no way of refuting who Jesus is and what he's done. In other words, his enemies are silenced. 
in both instances. So you take all of those things and you add them up. What do all of those commonalities tell you when you put them together? Simply this. The lover of God has faith that God wants to save. What you see in Jesus in all of these aspects is that he has the desire to save. He wants to save. He's not, you know, in these situations saying to, you know, to the, to the lady who's, who's there, saying, wow, I'm sorry that you're bent over like that, but it's the Sabbath day. Come back tomorrow. Can't help you today. He doesn't say that. He's not, you know, at the dinner party with these guys, like, well, these all these religious leaders around, and they're watching me right now, and I got to be careful about what I do, so I, I can't save you right now. I can't heal you right now. Or, or he doesn't say something like, well, I can heal your physical bodies, but as far as the underlying spiritual issues of, of, of either, you know, demon oppression or, or your, your fleshly sin, I can't handle that. I can't really deal. Like, you don't see Jesus shrinking back or shrinking away. Instead, you see Jesus rising to the occasion, going willingly into these situations, wanting to place his hands on them, wanting to deal with them, wanting to heal them, wanting to save them. God wants to save. When you look at the lengths that God has gone to, that God takes on flesh, that God becomes a human being, that he empties himself of glory in order to become a little tiny baby and live in this world, the lengths that God has gone to in order to save you and me and rescue us. It's because God wants to. There is no force bigger than God saying you have to save these wretched people that you made. God wants to save. It's the only reason he does. Do it. He wants to save us. So let's transition. We looked at the, what the two stories have in common, and let's look at what's different about each story. And by looking at their differences, we're gonna see the breadth of Jesus' message of salvation. First thing that we notice is that one is public and one's private. The, 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 the account in, in chapter 13 takes place at a synagogue, large crowd, very public. Everybody's there. The second one takes place in private. Jesus has been invited to this Pharisee's house to, to eat a meal with him. Now, we need to understand, like, that's a setup. Uh, you might remember uh, from Luke chapter 11, uh, it's, it's is this in verses 53 and 54. It says, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Here uh, in, in Luke 14, it says that they're watching him carefully. This is a setup. This is a trap. They're going to invite him to a, 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 a so-called dinner party, and, and he's going to be the so-called guest of honor, but he is there in order for, for them to see him heal somebody on the Sabbath so that they can accuse him of going against God, of disobeying God. They purposely set this up. This is a trap. But regardless... Jesus is going to save both publicly and privately, and we see the breadth of his salvation there. Keep moving on. The second thing that we see that's different is that in the first occasion, he's healing a woman, and in the second, he's healing a man. And don't let the simplicity of that go by you. See, Luke of the, of the, of the four Gospels is, is, is sure to make sure we understand that Jesus loves the poor and the powerless that he is in pursuit of the poor and the powerless, that he goes after the slave, that he goes after the people who are in low standing in society, that he goes after women. 
You see, among the, the religions of the world, only Christianity has elevated woman and has said, she is also an image bearer of God and is valuable to him. Only Christianity has done that. And so here's Jesus, and he's making a point of healing her and saying, she's a daughter of Abraham, and she's valuable, and she is worth something, and I care about her. With the man, it's to be understood that that he is a a son of Abraham. You know, the Pharisees, they they probably would have, I mean, they would not have let a, a Gentile into their house, just so you know. We know he's a son of Abraham. But the other thing to understand about this man that Jesus heals inside this house is like he's purposely brought there to set Jesus up. The, the Pharisees were, were, were people that, that if you saw somebody who had a, a physical malady, um, that physical malady was the result of sin and God is directly judging them and so you stay away from that person. They deliberately brought this person into the party so that Jesus would heal them and they, they could accuse him. But... <clears throat> Jesus saves both men and women, and there you see the breadth of his salvation. Next one. The third element of the story is, uh, has to do with, uh, with the nature of the, the, what's being saved. The first one is the woman is, is in demonic bondage. The second one is there's this, this man who is uh, fleshly bondage, you could say. It's the result of, of his sin, and, and that's why he's is in this position. But again, we see the breadth of Jesus' salvation that he can save both the spiritual and the flesh. Like he can save you from, from that real enemy, but he can also save you from yourself. Fourth one, he heals structurally and the soft tissue. It's sort of strange, but, but bear with me. In the first story, here's this woman who's structurally bent over. Because of the demonic oppression structure, her bones are bent. Her spine is bent. The second guy, it's his soft tissue that's the issue. It's swelling up. It's filling with fluid. If this is related to a cardiovascular issue, like the metaphor there is, is heart. Bone and heart. This again, it's a picture of the breadth of Jesus' salvation. He saves the solid stuff as well as the hard stuff. Right, or the soft stuff. He saves us structurally, but he also saves the, the, the soft parts. The heart is what he's going after here. Uh, last one. Last difference is, is in their responses. You see this woman, and uh, she's healed, and she glorifies God. She's glorifying God. Now, the man, when he's healed, immediately he's sent out. Jesus sends him away. And that was probably like an act of mercy. Like Jesus doesn't want to be at this dirt party. Like you get out of here. So Jesus heals him and sends him immediately away. We're not supposed to look at his response. We're supposed to look at the Pharisees' response. And the Pharisees' response again, silence. You see, this is the breadth of Jesus' salvation that all of us respond to it. Every human being will respond to the salvation that Jesus offers and either will glorify in it or it will shut our mouths forever. It will silence us under it. But all of us will will have a response to his salvation. So put it together. What does it add up to? The second point, the lover of God has faith that God has the power to save. So you're looking at, at, at the breadth of what Jesus has done. 
right? He has the power to save publicly and privately. He has the power to save man and woman. He has the, the, the power to save from, from spiritual bondage as well as fleshly bondage. He has the power to, to deal with the, the hard tissue and the soft tissue. Like There's this big breadth of, of, of what he affords us in his salvation, which speaks to the power of Jesus to save the power of Jesus to save. Here's the two points that you walk away with today. God, God wants to save, and God has the power to save. Now, who didn't know that walking in here? Like, really, you're gonna spend the last 30 minutes listening to me tell you that God wants to save you and that he has a power to save you? Like, you didn't know that? I'm willing to bet, like, if we took a show of hands, how many of you believe that God wants to save? Like, yes, of course, that's why I'm here. I took a show of hands. How many of you believe that God has the power to save? Of course he does but do we? But do we? How is, how is your repentance? What does your repentance look like? See, we recognize that Jesus at the cross, he saves us from the punishment of sin. And he gives us his spirit, and that saves us from the power of sin. And one day he's going to come back and he's, he's going to remove the presence of sin, right? He's going to do, do all of that, right? But, but, but the reality is we still live in sin and we still commit sin. And so there's an ongoing need for us to go to God and be open and honest with him about our sin. To deal honestly with him about what we've done, about our thoughts and about our actions and about our motives, and about what's going on in our heart. Are you living a life of repentance? You see, could it be that you're not living a life of repentance because you don't actually believe that God wants to save you? Or maybe you don't actually believe God actually has the power to save you from this sin. See, that's where the rubber meets the road is you look at your life of repentance. Does it show you that you in fact believe God wants and has the power to save? We're gonna... Uh, close our time together this morning by partaking of communion. And so, um, uh, just practically speaking, you'll find the, the elements in a tray on the inside of the aisle, uh, about knee level. If you take that tray out, and you could pass that down. I just want to let you know there are lots of reasons for not partaking of communion. This is not a religious activity. Nobody's judging you should you, keep, you pass that on, okay? But this is an act of faith, an act of, of trusting in what Jesus has done for us. Next thing I would say is, uh, if you need gluten-free elements, they're back by the soundboard. And, and lastly, if you would please, when you leave, would you take the, your, your empty package with you? Okay, that's the housekeeping stuff. Let's get back to, to what, what we're about to do. What you hold in your hand are symbols of salvation. They're symbols of salvation. What do you have in view when you think of salvation? Do you only look to future salvation. That what Jesus has done for you, and that's wrapped up in these symbols, do, do you confine that to God saving you from hell? Like future salvation, right? See, the Bible speaks of the, of the fact that, that what Jesus has done for us, it it's not only saves our past, not only saves our future, it saves us in the present. Jesus talks about abundant life, that he came to give us abundant life, and that means abundant life here and now. Do you think that salvation is only a futuristic thing, or, or is what Jesus done, has it accomplished 
you'd have a saved life now. Like, are you experiencing joy and peace and patience, like all that stuff from, from Galatians 5? Are you experiencing a saved life now? See, if you're not, could it be because you're, you're not totally convinced that he wants to save this life now or that he has the power to? See, there might be some of us here this morning who would say, I believe God has the power to save me, but I'm not sure he wants to. Going through a, a book with a, a few guys called Gentle and Lonely by Dane Ortland, and he begins the book by writing this. This book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, and the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator, those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It is for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For those who know God loves us but suspect we have deeply disappointed him. And we have told others of the love of Christ yet wonder, as for us, he harbors mild resentment. Do you think God wants to save you? Or do you think he's obliged to? Does he want to? I think there's some of us who would say, well, I think, I think God does want to save me, but I'm not sure he can. He can. I'm not sure he has the power to. Because the truth is, is there's this sin in my life and it's plagued me for a really long time and, as, as, and try as I may, it never seemed to get free of it. I never seemed to get clear of it. Maybe God doesn't have the power to save me. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says this. He says, I fear that thousands of younger persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. That there's a God of love, but he's not powerful. And we're at the bottom of the pit, and we see Jesus peering over the side, and we hear him saying, I'd love to save you, but I'm all out of rope. That he has the, the desire, but he doesn't have the power. And practically speaking, if you and I are not ready and willing to go to God daily, frequent, often with our sin, could it be because we think his patience is wearing thin? Could it be he's just not powerful to get us out of this predicament? We're quick to go with him with our requests and with our asks and all that, but are we quick to go to him with our sin? Could it be? There's one other commonality that these two stories have, and that in both of them, Jesus employs a, a, a technique of, of, of arguing called from lesser to greater. It, the, the idea is that um, here's a, a small example of something that's true. So if it's true on a, a small scale, then it's also true on a big scale. And so Jesus says in, in the first one, um, who would you uh, on a Sabbath day not untie your donkey and lead it to water? If that's true on a small scale, how much better is God than you? In, in other words, do you see his care and his concern for you, that he wants to free you, that he wants to lead you to, to the life-giving water? Do you see God wants to? 
You see, it's an argument from lesser to, to greater. This is the heart of God, and it's bigger than yours. It's better than yours. In the second place, he says, he says uh, who of you, if, you're, if your ox or your, your son fell into a well on the Sabbath day, you wouldn't reach in and ga- grab him out? It's a, it's a small picture, but it points to a greater picture. How much better is God than you? How much more powerful is God than you? That his desire is to save you in this way. See, this is the God that we have. This is the God that's revealed himself to us. And yet if we walk away saying he doesn't want to or he isn't powerful, then we've remade God in our own image. We've demeaned him, and that's not who he is. We're about to partake of communion. And and here are, are, are these symbols of salvation. He has saved your past. He will save your future, but he wants to save your present. And that and that means going to him with your sin. And not fearing what he's gonna do. Not fearing him say, shaking his head and saying, oh, I'm really disappointed with you, but okay. As we partake of these elements, and here you have the bread, and it's a symbol of his body taking your place. He dies so that you can go free. And it's a symbol of his blood poured out so that you can have a new relationship with God. As you sit here with these elements, I'm gonna leave you in silence in a moment after I pray. And ask yourselves these questions. God, have I been afraid to come to you because I think you're less loving than you actually are? Have I been afraid to come to you with my sin because I think you're less powerful than you actually are? Can God free you from this? I think all of us with our confessing mouths would say, yes, absolutely. But what needs to change is in there. Pray with me, and then you can partake on your own when you're ready. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace. Thank you for the truth that there is no way of out-sinning your grace. There's no way that, that our sin can be more powerful than your grace. And thank you for the fact that you want to give it. You want to give it. You want to save. You want to unbind and untie us. You want to lift us up out of the pit. You want to save. And you stand there willing, ready for us. And how often we we avoid you and we avoid dealing with our sin because we just don't really understand who you are and what you've done. I pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would give us a glimpse of your desire and your power for our salvation. Because when we can see that and we can accurately behold who you actually are and what you've actually done, that completely changes our identity and it sets us free. Show us that. In Jesus' name, amen.